Hi, Chris. How are you? Yes. Good evening, Rod. Here we are. Episode 48, straight out the doors. 48, you know, not many to go now. We've hit the big, the big year. Yeah, it's amazing that we're actually going to do a whole year, I think. I'm quite excited by it. Yeah, I think so. We'll have to do something for our one year thing. It's funny, I'm sat here in my ATP fleece wearing the merch from ATP that I lost in the cupboard for a year. You know, I eventually found it. I thought, oh, I may as well wear that. You know, maybe when we get to the year, we should just do some special merch, even if it's just for you and me. So we've got, you know, our wake from sleep t-shirt or, or chicken hat seems to be the thing. Yeah, the chicken hat is the new one on ATP. I don't buy a lot of merch, actually, because I always wear I'll get the size wrong and I'll be stuck with a T-shirt. It doesn't fit, always too big. So I don't buy, actually, very much merch for somebody that shops largely online these days. I don't mind a bit of merch. It's different. I went through my phase of having threadless T-shirts all the time and all that kind of stuff, which were really good. And oh, what was his name? It's not Leonard in the Big Bang Theory. It's the guy who's into the belt, buckle, belt buckles and things, always used to wear threadless T-shirts. Yes, I Howard. can't remember what his name is. Howard. Howard, yes. Howard. So I found that company, and they've always got quite some quite good jokes about Scooby-Doo or geek stuff or all the rest of it. But it's really expensive to import that stuff from America. So, yeah, when you're doing it, I think if we, if we, if we do do merch, I think we'll do British merch rather than American merch. It's got to be British merch. And I do love the Big Bang Theory, by the way. And you introduced me to that, and I loved every season of it. I think it's fantastic. See, me and my, my reliable recommendations for TV shows, although I, st- I I got a bit bored of the Big Bang Theory towards the end, but Taskmaster is the gift it keeps giving. I haven't finished Taskmaster yet. I'm still playing catch-up. Uh, no, Big Bang, and I was gutted. I didn't buy the Lego set of it, and I wish, in hindsight, I had. A, it's worth lots more money now, but B, it was just right in my wheelhouse. Yeah, I think that's good. It's funny. Both my kids who are now, well, both over 17, both still expect a bit of Lego for Christmas because they just quite like to, the therapy it gives them. Yeah, I am nervous. Our oldest son hasn't asked for any Lego for Christmas, and I'm a bit concerned that he's going to be missing out on Christmas Day. Uh, well, maybe. He might be looking for his Lego as well. They do kind of get settled into it. Yeah, it's good. I think Lego is good therapy. It's expensive therapy, but it's good therapy. It is. I've seen you know sets 400, 600 or, or more pounds new, and they appreciate generally, don't they? Yeah, I've certainly got a few that have gone up in the value. There is a Wally on the wall behind me, which is £40 brand new when I bought it. And it's now £200, I think. Mm, nice. Well, I'm never, the, I'm never selling Wally, though. I mean, well, why would you? Our stuff's all Harry Potter and Star Wars, I think, is what it is. There's like, they've even got Hogwarts. One of them's got Hogwarts and one's got a VW camper. And I think that's worth quite a lot more money now. There may be a VW camper on this very desk. <laughs> There may be a Bugatti on the wall and a, a McLaren Formula One car on the wall and a Land Rover Defender on the floor and a NASA rocket in the oh, corner. So, so now we, we've had your Crocs insight last week and now we've got your little Lego insight this week. That's really good. There's a lot of Lego in the shed. There's, the sh- the Lego's worth more than the tech. Fair enough. I mean, it's, as you can see behind me, and this makes great radio, doesn't it? That you know, I've got a Christmas tree that's made out of local driftwood here in Swansea. So somebody's picked it up off the beach and put it together. And whenever I've done video conferencing this week, I've been told by people on the other end, what a terrible tree, but I really like it. <laughs> no, I like that. And it's sustainable. It's, it's fantastic. I think it's so. Really... Oh, thank you. I'm glad you said so. Good. Should we move on? Straight into follow-up. So I think follow-up's with me today, which is fantastic. So first up, OpenRA. So I did install OpenRA. I've played it. So this was Open Red Alert. I'm assuming it's what the RA stands for, but is the first Command and Conquer that came out, Red Alert, and then June 2000. And I've had a go on it, and it's pretty good. A couple of comments for me would be, it's a bit strange, the interface to begin with, because you kind of got like a floating menu on the background. It doesn't look 
like the games and i think you you mentioned it you need the cd to install the music and the the video files which i don't have the cds for it. i have the digital versions of the games anyway so i didn't do that but i just went straight to playing the missions it's got all the missions on there you can pick them from the list it seems to have added some slight variations on controls it's a lot more advanced the control mechanism which i didn't quite get my head, head around and i seem to have to write click to do anything and i kept left clicking like i would 20 years ago and that took me ages with my muscle memory and if i remember correctly i think warcraft 2 was like that you had to right click to commit an action so it just took me a little while to get you started. i played a few levels of red alert with it it is really well done and yeah it's the old graphics but if you want to have a bit of nostalgia and it's free it's fantastic and a lot of engineering must have gone into making this game happen so enjoyable it's free very easy to set up because I'm often put off some of these sort of projects because sometimes you've got to do 20 steps and an incantation to get it to work. So would recommend, very enjoyable. Does not look anywhere near as good as Remastered, but it wouldn't do because Remastered was made 20 years after all these graphics were done. And I would like to give the June 2000 maps a go. So I'm, I'm quite keen to have a play with that. Fair enough. I mean, that was my sort of impression of it. Was it was really well done for something that's free? You can download it. It just starts. It's really fast. You know, it's it's really quite well put together. And they had made sensible modern enhancements. Like the right click thing was something I just tried first. Actually, that's my sort of default now. Is I right click and things. You you played more Command and Conquer than me, I think. So maybe that's why you were left clicking. But I I right clicked and that made sense. And the other thing I quite like that they brought to it is it's obviously fiddled with the mechanics slightly. Units gain experience, so they get better as if you sort of keep them alive longer. I think that's quite a useful modern thing to bring to the stake as well. But I'm with you. I think it's a great little open source project, and I can't believe the work that's gone into it, that it works as well as it can, presumably on, on Linux and Windows as well as it does on the Mac. And if you've got the files, you can enjoy your music and your video and all the rest of it, or you can build missions and you can play online multiplayer as well, which is just terrific. Oh, yeah, definitely. And full skirmish mode on it, so you can do one player on any map and things. So just yeah, really well done game. And I'd hate to think about the, the number of hours have gone in to, into making it. So, yeah, we definitely recommend Fantastic. And it worked really easily on the Mac. I don't know if it's optimized for Apple Silicon, but just fired up on my M1 and I was just off and running. Yep. I have another recommendation for a game you might like for later on in the show, actually. So uh, we'll maybe talk about that a little bit later. Okay. All the follow-ups to you, Chris. So you're going to tell us about the 16.2 home update. Yeah, this, this one's very quick. So 16.2, so I got back this week. I can't, I'd, I'd been away. I graded all of the house to 16.2. So that's tvOS, iOS, iPadOS. Did watches to 9.2. Even grabbed my kids' iPads, did them, did my wife's phone and watch. So everything's up to date. And then I pushed the big button to upgrade the home. So apparently as part of iOS 16, Apple did a big upgrade to upgrade the home architecture, but didn't really tell you any, any more than that. But you had to have everything on 16.2 that would control your home. And so when I first did it, it listed my Mac and my watch and my phone. They weren't upgraded. So I got everything upgraded. And then you had to upgrade your home pods. So all four, all six of my home pods were updated. And I've got four big ones and two minis, all up to 16.2. I then pushed the button to upgrade the home. And nothing looks different. There's nothing visible. But apparently it's meant to make it more reliable and quicker. I don't know what makes all that happen, but I must confess, I do think it certainly feels snappier when you push the light button, the lights come on quicker. And I haven't had any of the timeouts I've had previously. It's only been running a week, so it's too soon to tell. But for a free software upgrade, that hopefully makes some of my stuff quicker. I think that's pretty good. And like I said, it, may, it forced me also to update the children's iPads and my wife's 
Apple equipment, which is probably quite a good thing just to get everybody to the, to the same level. So it kind of made, made all that happen. But even in my house, just four people, there's a lot of devices to update. Yeah, I got. I didn't realize all that stuff, but all the devices having to be updated. So, I, and nowhere on the interface on the Mac side to me is that clear actually. So, I've updated my Mac, I've updated my iPad, I've updated my phone. Maybe one of the other phones in the house hasn't been. Getting anyone in my family to upgrade anything is is problematic, even if I take it off them. And the problem is, my kids are old enough now that they just say no, it's mine, hands off, get out. You know, that's all. There's only so much control you can take over that. So I don't actually understand what you're saying when you say this. this something's got to be updated because again, there's no sort of hanging ones or anything in the home interface that I've got to see. I'll let you answer that, but I've just got one observation myself as I did go to update my HomePods. I did update my HomePods. It took six attempts to update my HomePods. It just kept going, nope, 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 nope. And it wasn't that the software wasn't there. It just sat there doing nothing, unable, pushing the upgrade button, and it did nothing. And when it did update, now I can't play Apple Music on my HomePods. I've got to stream it through my phone. It just When I ask it to play something, it just goes, hmm, thinking. I'm afraid I can't do that. And that's all it does now, and I have no idea how you get out of that situation. So I did, so I grabbed my kids' iPads when they were in bed, and just did it to them but my kids are young enough that they just let me let me do that kind of thing anyway so that wasn't an issue and kind of the same with my wife actually i i just she was going to bed and i said i'm just going to quickly kick the updates off your watch and your phone put them back on the charger for it all done so that's kind of how i, I just kind of <laughs> grabbed the devices before anybody could say no but like i say my children are young enough that that, that they w- wouldn't say no anyway i agree with you on the home pod update but it can be quite messy to update your home pods i equally had an issue with my big home pods playing music and i just went into the home app and rebooted the stereo pair and then playing music then worked fine but i did have that problem so i must confess but i've certainly found it i think to be snappier at responding to events so i don't think it's done masses for me i certainly haven't i was expecting you know slightly different interface maybe or, or they've changed something to denote that you've done the upgrade but very little so we have to see how it goes but i don't really have many thread things yet so i do want to get a thread plug and and try that out as well and see if that's gonna be a lot quicker yeah fair enough i mean i've added a few extra plugs because it's christmas and i've got you know a couple of christmas trees and some lights around the place and stair lights and all that kind of stuff and i went through the box boxes that all the decorations are in when they came down from the loft and i had one tp link device that was old and three meros plugs which are very small, actually. They're quite a nice thing. And they're not thread, and they all require their own app and all the rest of it. But the Homebridge software I run in a, in a Docker machine in, in the basement on my server spotted them all straight away, and it integrated them into the HomeKit app. So I can use them all from within Home without me doing anything. So I, I was really impressed with that, actually. that's Who needs thread when I can just integrate all this stuff anyway, frankly? Yeah, the, that app is good to bring everything together. I used to use it, but I gave up because it was just another thing I had to run and, and maintain. I All mine are HomeKit ones, so it allows you all appear in the home anyway. The only thing that doesn't for me is my Dyson. I've got a Dyson heater in my shed, and it does annoy me that I can't have that in the home app. Now, on the whole, I think all very good. Yeah, it's a good update. And I think 16.2 is the, is the update that 16.0 should have been. It's the one that's got everything in it that's really been forced and pushed, so... It was good. Next up, then the following day, the iOS 16.3 beta came out and nothing's really been reported about it. But I just sort of put in follow up because I actually took the option to delete the beta profiles off my devices and thought, actually, there's nothing really in this 16.3 beta I've seen because sure, hopefully somebody would have said something if stage manager was a thousand times better. And I thought, you know, it'd be nice over Christmas not to be running a beta. And so that's what I did. Fair enough. 
Yeah, I, I took the beta profiles off when the release candidates were installed on all the devices. Beta, betas went then, and I've just been on the on the main branch ever since. And, and th that way it will stay until WWDC next year again, no doubt. I reserve the right should anything get exciting come in the beta. Like if they did something good to stage manager, then I would probably go and try it. But at the moment, I haven't seen anything, so I'm good. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. And again, you know, we said all the way through this, don't install beta software on your devices. I think, so conversely, if there's anybody out there still remaining on Big Sur or the 15 branches of, of iOS and iPadOS, now is the time to upgrade. When you get to the point one releases of these things, they're stable enough. And I saw this week that they'd actually brought the network manager back to Ventura. So that's something that was gone. It's sort of right at the bottom of the menu, hidden away behind three clicks, but you can actually say, give you a network location back. So when you're in a particular location, you can tell it to connect to a particular Wi-Fi network and things like that. So at least they're bringing things back, functionality that was there and they removed. Yeah, they've done this before, haven't they? I think in various OS updates, like, oh, we've taken this thing away, nobody uses it. And then lots of people cry out, I think. So that's obviously what's happened. Yeah. Yep. Good. Okay. Anything else in follow-up? I don't believe so. Should we dive straight into news and rumors? Yeah, I think so. So it's unusual I've got no follow-up. So I'll I'll just let you go on with that. So news and rumors. First story is yours. Yeah, so I texted you this one. This was about John Carmack leaving Meta. And there was obviously a post he shared internally, but equally then got leaked. And we've got a link in the show notes. Sadly, it is to Facebook, but what can you do? And it's the original post. I thought it was super interesting to hear about an exec leave a company and actually be really truthful why he's leaving now it probably shouldn't have got into the public domain but equally if you write anything down in this day and age it's going to get into the pu public domain but i thought it was really interesting how he's basically said that he thought they were doing some good stuff at meta but there's just too many people and running really inefficiently at doing stuff that that's was kind of my big takeaway from it and it see, obviously seemed to not not work well with him or with how he wants to function that they were just so inefficient and that must be coming true because obviously matter have let 11,000 people go in, in the last two months, I think it was. Yeah, so a little bit of background. John Carmack is a games developer, is known for being a games developer. And if you'd watched that high score recommendation that I gave out a few weeks ago, he is actually featured in that as being sort of the person who developed Doom with John Romero in software. So has a lot of a lot of kudos in the, certainly the games development world for where he came from. And it wasn't just Doom. There was Wolfenstein 3D and Commander Keaton and a bunch of other things that he did. He wrote all the network code more or less in two nights to make Doom work back in the days before we had the local area networks and things that we've got, at least the reliable local area networks and things we've got now. So a bit of a coding legend, knows his stuff really well. And it was a big deal when he moved to Meta. And as you say, he's been there 10 years. And the post is interesting in that it's very blunt, isn't it? He holds nothing back about his issues with Meta and the problems he's had with developing it, and a lot of it is around efficiency. He seems happy enough with the device, but isn't happy with the way the software's going or going or, or anything like that. So I think it is worth a read because he makes some good points in there, and he's obviously self-critical and self-reflective as well in saying it's the fact maybe that he stayed remote from it all. But Meta has spent a vast amount of money on this, and it can't just be down to one person. You know, I think the inefficiencies aren't just down to John Carmack not being resident in the building. I think, you know, the pandemic has shown us we can all be highly efficient when we're not, you know, all in one place doing things, particularly when you're developing code. So, yeah, it is interesting. Yeah, I think it is. And you see it, don't you? I mean, I'm in a company that's got five times as big as what it used to be. And you can just see it getting slower and slower to make a change, put something live. So you do see it, but it sounds like he just wants to be a programmer, not a manager, not dealing with all the politics of a big company. And obviously it wasn't the right fit for him. 
you know, he wants to be down in the weeds coding by the looks of it, not not in the office dealing with it all. But you're right, I think it sounds like they've got some good hardware, but just just the inefficiency got to him in the end. And I get it, it must, must be a killer. So I'm not surprised. And obviously, he's, we had a post recently, didn't we, in the news about him being quite downbeat at a meta conference. So it's not a shock, but I'm amazed that the business let him send this out internally because it's not a motivator for the, the team remaining, is it? No, it's not. And, you know, we're seeing this across tech at the moment. We'll talk about Twitter because we always talk about Twitter in a minute. Uh, uh, and, you know, that sort of pervasive attitude at Amazon, at Meta, at Twitter, they're, they're, a lot of them are fumbling their way. And it feels like we're about to have our, what are, what are we now? The Web 2.0 bubble is about to burst, I think. These sort of big networks that drove us forward in, in these times. Amazon aren't going anywhere as a company. I don't think, but Twitter seems to be failing and, you know, Facebook is, is struggling and, you know, all the brands associated with them are struggling. And I think we're sort of a crucial element of what's going to survive into the next generation of, of web apps and companies. And we see it internally with Apple as well. You know, they, I think, have lost their way with the App Store. You know, they have lost their way through regulation and all sorts of things. So even the, the tech titans, we're beginning to see a bit. Of- I think what we're seeing, though, is where companies aren't moving with the times. That's what we're seeing, isn't it? We're going to talk about Apple later. We've obviously seen it with Twitter. Twitter struggled for years. They're trying to move now too quickly and they're misreading the room. And maybe Facebook slash Meta just haven't managed to keep up. I think they were better when they had more data and they knew to buy WhatsApp and Instagram because of the, the data they were seeing. They've not made any of those acquisitions. Facebook's got quite stale. And then they're trying to chase Oculus, but it feels like they're throwing bodies at it rather than actually having a clear strategy and executing on it. And I, th- I think that's where we're, where we're struggling with these companies of how do they continually pivot and evolve and not just carry on doing the same old, if that makes sense. No, they can't because the problem is the client base ages out or and the, the next generation picks something else. And that's true of all products. We picked Apple products, you know, after, after realizing the alternative of Microsoft at the time was worse. I'm not 100% sure that's the the case all the time anymore. I mean, obviously on this podcast, I'm going to say, yes, it is. The hardware is certainly better. But to me, Apple software is not what it was. And maybe that's not fair. It's not what it could be. You know, you, you yeah. see the lack of polish. You see the lack of care. You see things flung. And, you know, I don't know if we're going to talk about the Freeform app, but you see things chucked out as part of a software update that aren't publicized. Do you think, is there a requirement for something like this? There's no case really to sell it other than it appearing in the WWDC briefing. So I, I feel the big companies have kind of just got stale and they're happy with the status quo. And Apple particularly, I look at them and I think, is this IBM in the making, you know, who who did lose interest and sort of, you, you can see the relevance of the of the company sort of declining over time. The money's not, and that's certainly the truth for, for IBM as well. And maybe this is what's going on with Facebook. You know, they're stagnating. Yeah, stagnating. And it's hard, isn't it, I think, to keep a company fresh, especially when you're within it. And that's why I think it is healthy to bring bring in change, have different leadership from time to time. Look at Apple. I think Johnny Ive got stale. We talked about Evans Hankey recently. And she came in and actually revitalized, I think, the Mac lineup and made all the right hardware decisions predominantly to actually turn it around. I'd love to see what her take on the iPad Pro would be. I fear that she's going to leave before whatever the redesign is that you know sees the light of day. Maybe, so, maybe we've seen her input with the base level iPad getting a function ray, for example. It sounds small, but that's massive. Maybe we have, but it's it's not the hardware. I'm, I, the, hardware the hardware on the iPad, particularly the iPad Pro, is delightful. It's the software that's slowing it down for me. So again, yeah. Anyway, we've gone off on one. Decoder podcast with Automatic. 
So whilst we keep talking about the social networks, probably a good segue here. I love the Decoder podcast. I don't listen to every episode, depends who's on, but they had the automatic CEO on there who is also the CEO of Tumblr and WordPress. So Automatic's the parent company that own Tumblr and WordPress. And he was just really insightful of his view of what Elon is doing or not doing at Twitter. And he speaks obviously from experience of buying Tumblr and also talked a little bit around how Tumblr's user base has swelled given the recent weeks and the incidents with Twitter. So I saw it was a good podcast. Like I say, I'm not a big social media person, but it was interesting just to hear a CEO of a social media company discuss what they do how they go through it how little they actually paid for tumblr and how much money tumblr burns it was quite interesting you know they basically bought for three million which is nothing but they were basically taking on the liability of it and the, the cost of just running it and trying to get it into some shape but really interesting podcast yeah i mean these are the people you want to hear talk about it really the one person i don't want to hear talk about this stuff really is elon so it is interesting i get a different perspective from a competitor and i think yeah i mean it's a good recommendation for a podcast and i'll try and listen to it this week should we talk about the next story because it's kind of relevant yeah so it brings us doesn't it nicely into twitter last night i've turned around and blocked all links on twitter to other social media sites such as instagram mastodon where people are leaving for tumblr facebook and it just feels like the free speech piece is going out the window quicker than Elon has said. I support free speech. Yeah, he doesn't support free speech, does he? He, fr- he supports his speech and his attitudes as much as anything else is what we can see. Because, I mean, on one level, I can understand he thinks there's a competitive advantage in not allowing links to other social networks because he doesn't want his users to flee and go elsewhere. He doesn't want them to go to Tumblr. He doesn't want them to go to Mastodon. He doesn't want them to go to Facebook. He wants them to stay on Twitter. But he's the one who said all all modes of speech should be allowed and he's not going to ban anything. Free speech means you've got to put the stuff on you don't like as well as the stuff you do like. That's fundamentally what free speech is. And what he's doing now isn't free speech. He is policing Twitter, or at least was policing Twitter when he released these things, that he wasn't allowing these links to other social networks. And this is just one of a few things that he's done recently, sort of in this space. And it sort of started on Sunday night when he put up a poll going, should I step down as head of Twitter? I will abide by the results of this poll. And, you know, I, I, I'll have to, I'm not on, well, I haven't got access to the Twitter link at the moment, but the last time I looked at this, the overwhelming majority of people seem to be, yes, he should leave Twitter. So that's an interesting thing if you see that government by poll when, you know, that, that's odd for Twitter when Twitter's full of bots anyway. <laughs> well, yeah, there, there is that, but I think he's, he knows he's cocked up. He's not read the room. His Tesla stewardship's could be coming to an end because they're, they're calling for him not to step aside as the Sierra Tesla because he's not not running it. He's too involved in Twitter. And all he's done to Twitter is chase people for eight to 20 bucks a month to become Twitter blue and annoy all the advertisers. So he knows he's cocked it up badly. And the best thing he could do if he wants to regain any of Twitter's prowess is to step aside, instill a new CEO to run the business, and all that new CEO really needs to do in the first week is undo everything Elon's done and run a lean company, but just really focus on having a moderated platform. I mean, part of it, wor- part of me worries it's too late, really, because the kind of exposed he's kind of exposed Twitter for what it is. He's driven it down this path. He's driven away the advertisers. He's driven away the content creators who care about these kinds of things. You know, if you think 
most of us have stuck through Twitter over the last, what is it, 10 years now? Because we quite liked the, the balance the platform had. If you wanted breaking news, there was no like Twitter. If you wanted to get a celebrity's opinion on something, you'd get it pretty much directly from them on Twitter. And since all this has started, and, and you know, his his deadening of free speech, and the other thing that I think we've got the link to in here is how there was a an account that tracked Elon's jet. It was called at Elon Jet written by some student somewhere in America. And Elon banned that account because he said it was allowing, giving people access to his location at all times. The location of his jet is freely accessible at all times anyway. You know, any jet that's flying around in there, there are apps out there to track where they are. Just because you know what airport a jet lands at doesn't mean that it's it's betraying your free speech. You know, it's inv invading your civil liberties. Frankly, you shouldn't be flying around in your jet quite so much anyway because it's not good for the environment. You know, you make electric cars, why are you zipping around everywhere in a, in a, in a jet? But... Journalists that reported Elon had banned this account got banned themselves, you know, from the New York Times and things like that. And if that isn't stopping free speech, I really don't know what is. As you can understand why these big news organizations would also be very gun-shy about committing a lot of, put a lot of skin in the game when it comes to Twitter. Because if you can just have your accounts and your journalists and what makes up your news stories removed like that, why would you put your eggs in that closed basket? Yeah, I'm so infuriated by the whole thing. He comes in with free speech and, like I say, blocks anybody that talks about him, blocks any other social media site because of his mass exodus into Mastodon or Facebook or whatever it may be. I just, he could scarcely got this more wrong, I think, and his failure to read the room on this. He could have actually, actually done something good for Twitter, but I don't know, for whatever reason, either his advisors aren't advising him or he's not listening, but he's just done everything wrong, hasn't he? Just... I don't, I don't know. How could you take a business like this and just run it right into the ground? It, it could, it shouldn't have been this hard to have turned it around. But I, like you, think is it too late now for this for Twitter to come back? I was actually with some friends last night and I asked the same question. Who are fairly tech aware, and they think, oh no, I'll be fine. Twitter will bounce back. And I was like, oh, well, I'm probably on the, I don't know, forty percent. It won't will bounce back, and six percent it won't bounce back. If that makes sense. Because I just think it's gone too far now. People have left. When people start closing down. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. And I'd the, love to see their dashboard in the office of, you know, number of closed accounts or active users per day and what that actually looks like. Yeah. And the thing is, if, if real users are leaving, but the bots are still there, then the demand on Twitter's infrastructure is still probably as high as it's ever been because the bots probably took up the vast majority of it. So to keep the server spinning and the lights on, it's a significant amount of electricity and power and all the rest of it. And then the value isn't there. The money's going out, the advertising spend isn't coming in, the Twitter blue thing is going to be a disaster because the bots aren't going to pay to tweet. It, I just see the whole thing crumbling around his ears unless he you know, fixes it very soon. And then the other story that I just thought was interesting is there's a picture of Elon with Jared Kushner, who I think is Donald Trump's son-in-law, with at the Qatar World Cup. And you just think he's not spending that much attention on Twitter, is he, if he's out there watching the football? So Yeah, I, I thought that. He's not hardcore, is he? He's not hardcore. Not at all. I mean, he can afford to go. He does actually look like he might be watching the match, unlike everybody else in the picture. But, you know, <laughs> it's just, I don't know. I don't get it. It's all very strange, I think. Anyway, enough of that. Let's go on. What's next? Moving on. We've got a realization by others in the marketplace that Google kind of has a monopoly on maps. And we've talked before about Apple Maps and how they're better. They're still not good enough, in my opinion. They're better for sure. 
but uh, this is a story on Ars Technica that I quite like the look of that came out on the um, 16th of December about Linux, Amazon, Meta, and Microsoft want to break the Google Maps monopoly. So they're trying to spin up their own maps for initiative called Overture Maps that will interoperate with some of the open services like OpenStreetMap and, and those other ones. But I think this is a really good idea. I think there should be competition in the mapping space. We shouldn't just fire up Waze every time you know, we, we want to head off somewhere. I, I'm... I'm not surprised Apple isn't on this list of companies that wants to do mapping as well, but I just think it's interesting that these guys have realized they're getting left behind a bit and they're trying to do something about it. Is this like the matter of maps in essence, this open, you know, the big tech giants coming together to an open source standard for maps, which I get. I think Apple's not on there because they probably would have been if this was four years ago, but they've obviously already rebooted their maps initiative. And I must confess, I was in London recently. I drove into London and the, the quality of the maps, the detail of the number of lanes on the road, the, the, the crossings, when you're in 3D mode, the 3D buildings around you, fantastic. So I think it's too late for Apple to have joined, but could have been very different many, many years ago. I think it makes sense. Why We all want good maps. Why wouldn't we pull all the data together? Yeah, and if you're That's Microsoft... I'm on board with it. Totally. And if you're Microsoft, you don't have a decent mapping initiative. You know, and you know the the primary vendor of consumer operating systems and you know Azure services and things like that. Why on earth they don't have mapping when it's become such an important part of of, of everyday life? So you think of the amount of things that mapping is reliable. It's not just for driving around, is it? We've said before, the cycling is where an Apple an area where Apple has let everybody down, frankly, which Google have come up on. But we're all so dependent. We our default position is to fall back to Google because it is the reliable thing that's out there that you know, works every time. Because I have found Apple Maps a bit out of date. I found the directions sometimes it gives you is just plain wrong. You know, if you know your local area quite well and it's trying to route your own some of it, it's not good enough, frankly. And it gets you there ultimately most of the time. But the, but there are issues with it now because we are who we are. We'll tend to default more towards Apple Maps, I think, and give it the benefit of the doubt. But having more competition, competent competition in this marketplace can only be a good thing for all. Google Maps will get better. Apple Maps will get better. And you would hope something like this would be better. I completely agree. I think it is good competition and i equally have struggled with apple maps a little bit just in walking directions it's got no idea and it's just sending me in a bonkers route when you could just walk straight down the road and it's trying to make me do a big you know big circle around where i want to go so i don't agree that it is perfect i love the presentation of it but i i think there are still some issues with it and i'm curious to see where if this will improve at all in the next version of carplay because yeah. that's predominantly where i use the maps is in my car yeah, fair enough. But if you've got, say, ooh, an open AR headset coming along where it's going to get, you know, potentially give you directions and things like that, or at least overlay reality on, on overlay an augmented reality feature on what's going on, you think you'd want your maps to be pretty good about what it's trying to do. Yeah, fair point. <laughs> it's going to be interesting, isn't it, to see what that looks like. Do you think we're going to get some AR then? I still feel it's a bit early. I don't, it's how you're going to sell it to people is a thing. You know, Meta have just shown, we talked about John Carmack at the top of the show. Meta have just shown it's a difficult space. You know, all right, they don't have that much of a background in hardware, which Apple do. They've only really got the one service, Facebook and, and messaging derivatives thereof, to do on it. Apple aren't great at building services from the ground up. They're, you know, they're they're quite good at innovating in an area where there's substantial deficits. But I don't think there's any use case, particularly for AR, for me at the moment. Yeah. I don't disagree with you. I've I've not done any AR. I've not got an Oculus. I've got little interest in it because I do get quite motion sick. And the thought of wearing a whole headset while I'm doing meetings is not that encouraging to me. I may eat those words once I see what Teams in AR looks like. But yeah, 
I'm, it's not for me at the moment, but I think I need to see the practical applications of it. So let's see where we go. Well, I'll have to, if I remember, I'll put a link in the show notes to a little review that the Verge team did with the new Oculus Pro headsets, where three or four of them tried to do a meeting on the thing that's meant to work really well on, on Oculus, which is the business side of it. And it's just a shocking state of affairs. It really is. Things don't work. They can't point at each other. You know, they try and do the gaming thing. They enter a world and the one girl on the team gets chased around by a bunch of guys who are going, oh, there's a girl in here. There's a girl in here. And you're like, oh my God, this is awful. You know, it's it's really a quite an appalling state of affairs. It's worth a watch, the video. Yeah, yeah that's not good, is it? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a bad show all around, really. I, I won't go looking for the link while we're on the show because it'll probably start playing and who knows where we'll be. But yeah, it's, it's definitely worth a watch for five minutes of your time. Okay. Okay, next story. I thought this was quite an interesting one, actually, from 9to5Mac. And it seemed to come out of nowhere. There were some rumors from German last week, one of which we'll talk about with an EU story in a minute. But this is Apple mulling opening the browser engine, the NFC chip, and more to third-party apps on the phone. Did you see this story? I did see it, and I was quite surprised. I was like, is it April Fool's? What's going on? Because it it feels like actually Apple, uh, maybe they've had enough, and maybe they realize the writing's on the wall, and they're going to be making quite significant policy changes, by potentially making significant policy changes. But I think they're going to have to do something. Otherwise, whilst they've remained dominant and had a stranglehold, if they don't do these changes they could get left behind because the world's going to move on. And this is what we were probably talking about at the top of the show, where you've got to pivot and move, keep moving on and not just staying as you've always been. So I think this is quite exciting. You know, they thought they might open up the browser, NFC, and allow sideloading, mobile app stores. Now, none of this is confirmed, and we don't know how they would do it, police it, you know, the, the nuances of the implementation. But potentially that it's got this far and is leaked out, I think could be quite interesting. And maybe they do it over a number of years, like like they've done with other things. They're slowly tweaking the App Store rules. They allow you now to pick your default mail client and web browser. You know, they're slowly chipping away at the iceberg, I think. And that's the right thing. They need to have a strategy. Where do they want to get? And what's the thousand steps to get there? So I'm quite encouraged by it. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's interesting. My, my worry with all this is, Apple will do it, but they'll do it in the most Apple way possible. And and that will be to how do they maximize the amount of dollars still flowing to Apple from any of these sort of options. So you need to keep that in mind. That I think they're doing it, but they're doing it grudgingly. I'd like to think they were being a bit more in control. And I don't know that there's a lot of good law and in, in this all comes from the EU as much as anything else, as, as we've seen with a lot of these things recently. If legislators do it, the chances are they're going to miss things because legislators don't really understand technology all that well. You see, get a half-hearted implementation. So Apple may obey the letter of the law and certainly not the spirit of the law. So yeah, there's a third-party app store, but we want to know how many users you've got and we might bill you for that or, or however they'll do that because that's similar to what they did with the Dutch and, and the Korean apps that we've talked about previously before. They still expect their, what is it, 28 29% you know, from, from those things for, to show the transactions that are going through on their system. So that's one thing. Taking this, if we were to take it at face value and Apple was doing this with, with an open heart effectively, this can only be a good thing. That only Allowing alternative app stores to be sideloaded or however they'd be on there, or Apple actually just allowing it, is only going to increase competition. And as long as they're, you know, they're able to do it a, a way that makes money for them, is good. I think it's it's problematic for consumers that oh where do i get that particular app well i've got to download the epic store and that's how i get fortnite on my phone because i can't get that on that but 
Consumers cope with that on their computers now. I can, I can, I can have the Steam store, I can have the Origin store, and I can install games from both on there. Or you know, I can go to the Mac App Store on on my Mac if I want to. So I think consumers can get their head around the thing I've got to buy is resident here. But Apple have a huge advantage in that the default is the App Store up to this point. So I think people would still go there first. So just looking at the App Store, I think we'll talk about the browsers in a minute. My take would be as long as they don't enforce it too badly or they allow there's a certain amount of goodwill in it i think that's a good thing yeah i agree with you so i think open up the browser engine that should be a no-brainer you can stick in your browser engine into your web browser like chrome and you can still get chrome through the app store tick done nfc they should definitely be opening that up to do more with it like why wouldn't you and that shouldn't be hopefully a negative in them i guess that will open them up for other walleting apps and what have you but i think that is the right thing they, they would still be the you know, the de facto one. And then having alternate app stores or side loading has got to be the way to go. Why isn't there an Xbox store, a Steam store, whatever it may be? I'd love that on my iPad. Why can't I have the Steam store on there and download some games that would run on my iPad? I can do it on my Mac, but why can't I do it on my iPad? They are literally the same architecture now. So I think it's encouraging. It will be interesting to see how they do it, but I hope they've realized that where they've been behind the curve and they've been forced to do it, it's probably better to be in front of the curve so you don't get forced to do it, so you can do it in your way. Yeah, I'd agree with that. They'll always have their own APIs for themselves, you know, that to, to make things work in the operating systems, you know, in the best way possible. But if they open up enough of it to be useful, so you could, I don't know, download, download Unreal Tournament or something on the Epic Store, on your iPad, imagine the explosion of games you could potentially suddenly have if it was enough of that. People would buy iPhones and iPads just to run Fortnite on them, you know? Genuinely, there's enough people out there who, who are keen to do that kind of stuff. They fell, they fell out with Epic because of this 30% tax. If they allow it open a little bit more, Epic, I'm sure, would quite gladly come back in, pay them the minimal amount of money they needed to, and Apple would shift more devices. This is the thing I don't understand. They seem to be seeing so short-sighted about the sense they'd be, you know, they're losing in these sort of transactions for the bigger goal of, actually, this is a very open platform in the way that the PC and the Mac are open platforms, and you have that wealth of software, and not first-party software. It's the third-party developers that make your computer useful. Yeah, agreed. It is, yeah. It's going to be super interesting to see where this one ends up. I, yeah, I'm nervous that something's leaked that we're never going to see the light of day. I think that's my concern. It is possible, and maybe they'll go back into full lockdown mode, and you know it, things will not change, and it will become ever more restrictive. And when I look how locked down my iPad is compared to how my unlocked down my Mac is, with still sensible management on it, you know it has got security on it, it has got all the sort of various restrictions about spyware and, and all the things that you need to keep up to date. But I'm capable of downloading things like OpenRA or an emulator and, and using them if I want to. And that is more in the spirit of computing to me, you know, in the open web and things like that. And not the, it's not a walled garden at this point, the prison of things like Meta and Twitter, where users are in them and unable to get out and trapped because that's where their businesses are, because they've built their storefronts inside of these walled gardens. And Apple should not. It's a bad look. I agreed. It's a bad look. It's going to be interesting to see how it unfolds. Hopefully, we start seeing some more smoke as the year unfolds, you know, heading towards WWDC, but maybe... It's too soon to have it in for the next OS roadmap. We shall see. Wouldn't it be great in our, in our USB-C future where we've got side loading and we can put whatever we want on there as well from whatever app store and it just works and that would be nice. I wonder though, I wonder if they've had any of this in the background anyway. Like when they built Mac OS X, they had in the background it working on Intel even when it was on PowerPC. So I wonder whether they've had any of these things already in the, in the background 
as a flag that they can turn on. Yep, we're now going to allow alternative browser engines and we've got it or whether they are actually having to do all the engineering from the ground up it'll be interesting it will be interesting but we know how easy ios used to be to jailbreak didn't we the cydia app store was a thing before there was an actual app store so you've got to think they've got if they had any clever any sense they'd have recruited some of the developers have built those sort of initial app stores and, and sort of bring them alongside and they could do this very safely i think yeah true there's a lot of really good talent out there like the old store you know get get that guy on the books yeah. How can you make, make that a reality? Yeah. Anyway, it's interesting and it's, it's watch the space, I guess. Moving on. The other company that's in a bit of hot water at the moment, and it's our perennial favorite to talk about in this podcast, is Microsoft. And as they're already in trouble with the EU, actually the European Union is lo- now looking at them going, hang on, you're bundling that Teams thing with your operating system, are you? That's a bit anti-competitive. And I think that's fair. You know, if they were being told off for Office all those years ago and the company only got broken up because of integrating Office in a web browser with Windows integrating teams and sort of making it a requirement for people to use before without knowing about slack and other things that's a big deal yes this is saying about teams being bundled with office but then they've also bundled teams with windows 11 haven't they so i wonder whether you know is this internet explorer 11 all over again or whichever version of internet explorer it was where actually all roads leads to teams and i'm definitely seeing it in the corporate space we use teams all the time we bet on it quite big back in the pandemic, but actually a few of our suppliers and partners who use Google Meet or Zoom, most of them have announced actually, yeah, next year we'll move into Teams. Because if corporations are on Teams, it's a lot easier just to join a Teams meeting. Why, when I go to a Google meeting, have I got to sign up for a Google account? I don't want a Google account. I don't think you do have to sign up for a Google account. You can, you can, you can join without a Google account. You just need to start. On my iPad the other day. I had to sign up for an account. I couldn't join it without, which was really infuriating. See, I'm on the opposite side of the fence in this. We have Teams in the university because we've got all the Microsoft products in the university, but we choose to pay for Slack because it's a better experience for us. No, Slack. Yeah, Slack. And Zoom as sort of our, our sort of way forward. And it's interesting. Slack is becoming a lot more pushy about using its internal things for video. They call them huddles inside of Slack. So you can do voice chat or screen sharing or video calling in the way that we do. But we again, and we pay for Zoom as well. In fact, we've replaced our entire phone system with Zoom, you know, in, in the university. And every time I'm forced to use Teams, I'm just like, oh, this is not good. They don't build a good app, Microsoft. The Teams app is definitely not fantastic on the iPad. We, like you, they do use it for our entire phone system as well so if you phone my office number it rings my team's client the app could be better i don't disagree i've never used slack if i'm honest with you we have a little bit of t teams we have a little bit of zoom just with our training facility because of apparently it does breakout rooms a lot better and how you bring everybody back together that kind of thing which i think teams has added but my understanding from our training department is not as good but interesting to see though that Two years ago, if this case got raised against Microsoft for bundling Teams with Office, and then they went on and bundled Teams with Windows, surely they're just, I don't know, maybe, maybe as we, I think we talked last week about, then companies know the risk of doing it, but they're going to carry on anyway because they reckon they make more money or get more adoption. And therefore, they just carry on anyway, knowing that, that they may have to deal with a court case later. I think that's very much their attitude in the same way that, you know, the Activision Blizzard thing, they're just plowing ahead because they've got to. That's sort of the strategy they've decided internally and they'll just deal with the legislators as they come along. Very Apple-like. And you've got to think all these big companies are the same as each other, really, aren't they? They just, this is our thing. This is our money. We deserve to make it. We're going to plow ahead and do it. And isn't it strange to be talking to Microsoft and Apple in the same breath in that way? Yeah, it's not good, is it? It's not good because, again, and I genuinely believe this, they're becoming IBM, you know, and what will happen, I think, is some new 
sharp little startup somewhere will come along and eat the lunch and it won't be from Google and it won't be from Apple and it won't be from Microsoft. Maybe, maybe they need a challenger though. I'd like to it's see. It's healthy it. for any sector, isn't it, to have a challenger like you see in the banking space that haven't got all the legacy to support and all the cruft and the outdated systems and you have a challenger come in and, and really go for it. Yeah, totally. I mean, you're right in banking. Monzo and Starling have, have sort of really shaken up the whole banking sector. And that, that's only a good thing for us as consumers and for us as businesses. It gives us more choice. You know, we're, we're all so locked into our little silos of Microsoft or, you know, what was Lotus back in the day or, or whatever it is that you, that you do. The, and the, I went to a conference once where I watched a guy go, the crucial thing isn't how much it's costing you to get in, it's how much does it cost you to get out. Because at the point where it goes wrong, it could go really wrong. So what will you do with your data the day you need to get it out? And that, that's always been quite a thoughtful thing for me that I go, all right, I can see the value of this, but what happens when it goes away? Have you seen this story about medical implants going wrong this this uh, this week? So no. th- th- this is a fascinating story about a, they make bi- some sort of bionic eye where it will allow people with a retinopathy, I think, to be able to see a certain degree. Again, which that was great. They implanted these things in people's heads. It was given clearance by the FDA. They were able to get on and do it. But the company that makes them went out of business, were bought by somebody else, and the company that bought them has no interest in maintaining the servers required to make these things continue to communicate and work. People are actually losing their sight because of software. And that's not good. That's really not good. And for me, all corporate software should think about that kind of thing. You know, if your database vendor oh, I won't get fired for buying Microsoft or I won't get fired for buying DB2 or, or you know, whatever the equivalent is. Yeah, but it should always be compatible to put into something else with a fairly minimal amount of effort, or I should know what the costs are for doing that. And, you know, when you when you think if we're actually starting to put things inside of us that are dependent on these on these technologies, we should really think about it a little more carefully outside as well. So that's just my music, my random musing for the day. Yeah, I don't like anything medical, if I'm honest. Very squeamish. But it's a fair point. Companies, people commit to things and you don't always think about your exit strategy or the, or the cost of an exit. Absolutely. Is that all we've got on that story? Yeah, I believe so. So should we go on to media? Let's move so, on to media. Media, I put in a just a link, just tongue-in-cheek of what we talked about last week was the, the top films in the last 10 years. And we, you and I looked at the top 10. And this one, I just, not to talk about every film, but I put in a link to the biggest flops. It's not a beautiful website. It's got some horrible advertisements on it. But I just thought it was interesting just to see what the biggest flops were. And I had looked through the list, and I just picked out one or two that I've actually seen which surprised me. So one in there for me was Ali, which was a Michael Mann film back in early 2000s. I quite enjoyed the film, but yeah, it was one of the biggest flops apparently. Have you seen any of the biggest flops that are on here? I haven't seen very many of these these films, I've got to say, and it, it's really quite a long list. <laughs> I was surprised when I started scrolling how long the list is. It's one of those things, I guess, is how do you define a flop? So as I was scrolling, I mean, a lot of them seem to be based on computer games and things, frankly, which didn't particularly surprise me. One that did stand out to me, and I, you know, like I say, I will get to a couple I've watched in a minute, was the 2017 remaster of The Mummy, which I didn't see because, I don't know if you remember this, when the trailer came out, the trailer leaked without any sound. 
onto YouTube. Oh, I didn't I didn't know that. Yeah, the trailer leaks with it and he's, and it was just ridiculous. <laughs> it was just Tom Cruise flying around inside of an airplane. Obviously something was going on. And it was just laughable. And I think the trailer killed that more more than anything else. So it's amazing how the marketing can sort of how these things go. I'm scrolling through this list and I'm looking at some of them. Robin Hood remake. I don't think there's been a good Robin Hood refilm in years, frankly. I think the Kevin Costner one even sort of struggled slightly. Cargo, never heard of it. The Promise, never heard of it. You know, there, here's a very good film that's on this list actually that you should go and seek out if you haven't seen it. And it's called Annihilation. It's with Natalie Portman. Have I've never seen it. It's, so it's on Netflix. I think it was made for Netflix. And it's a proper psychedelic, horrifying sci-fi experience. I got to say, I thoroughly enjoyed every creepy moment of it. And who makes it is Alex Garland, who also did Deus, if you saw that TV show, Dread, and a couple of others. Is that the guy who wrote The Beach? Yeah, it might be. And Ex Machina is the other one he did. Yep. So he's, he's a proper innovative avant-garde filmmaker. And this is a really good film. And it's not as good as Dread, but almost nothing is as good as Dread, to be fair. Dread, Dread 3D, not, not the Sylvester Stallone one. This is terrific. And I'd thoroughly recommend if you haven't seen it, go and watch it. So, so I was just writing down Annihilation and Dread 3D. One that got me that's on the list that you probably have seen, I don't think I have, was Blade Runner 2049. Have yes. seen it? So that estimated loss of $80 million. Well, it's a great film. And actually it might be better than the original Blade Runner. It's it's that rare case of a sequel, particularly as many years later, being better than the original. I, I went to the cinema to see it and was wowed. It's it's an extremely well done film. This will shock you, but I've not seen it. You, have you seen the original Blade Runner? Not for a long, long time. <laughs> well, I think it's Christmas. It's classic film season. It's it's a chance for all of, I'm going to talk about a film I haven't seen that I made an effort to watch in a minute, actually, that I think you should make an effort to watch some classic films over Christmas. For example, I noticed we have a family tradition where we get the Radio Times and the, the girls go through it and they sort of highlight the things they want to watch over the Christmas period. The original Ghostbusters is on on Christmas Eve, I think. So I'm up for that. I haven't watched that in years. It's a great film. I want to watch it again. Yeah, you know what? We equally have bought a Radio Times to go through and see, see what's on. Ghostbusters, yes. I wonder if my 11 and 9-year-old would be up for it. So I would like to watch it with them. I think they'll be up for it. So here's an interesting one that's on this. It's Look Who's Talking Now. And it's probably worth mentioning. Kirstie Alley, who's the actress in this, died a week before last, I think. Who you might know from Cheers. She took over from Shelley Long in, Tweer, in Cheers, I think. Good actress. I knew her from Star Trek 2. She was in a few things. She was she was in this big, big hit, big star. So it's unfortunate she passed away. I think she had some slightly unfortunate political leanings as well, but that might have been a reaction to the way Hollywood treated her. I don't know. But the original Look Who's Talking was quite a good film, so I'm surprised the sequel was, was classed as a bomb in amongst here. It's a bomb. That's not a good word for a film, is it? That's not a good word. Uh, one of your favourite Pixar... Well, Pixar's worst film is on this list as well, I see. I see The Good Dinosaur from 2015 is also on here. I have seen that film. It was awful. It was quite hard to encourage my children to stay in the cinema and watch it to the end. I wouldn't go as far as awful. I'd say it was deeply mediocre. <laughs> it was just not a good film. And it's probably the one Pixar film I've not gone back and rewatched. Whereas, yeah, all the other ones I must have gone back and watched at least once. Yeah, Solo, a Star Wars story. Yeah, that's not a great film. The only high point, in the, there's two high points in that film. Donald Glover playing Lando Calrissian was beautifully cast. And what's my other high point in that film? Oh God, the, the lady from Fleabag, whose name escapes me at the moment. Phoebe. Wallerbridge. Thank you. She's Thank you, you started me off. She's excellent as the voice of the droid in that as well. But other than that, deeply, deeply, deeply average film. Yeah, I think we should move on. We could, I, could, I, could, I could talk about not having seen... Oh, actually, that's one of my worst films of all time I've just got to. Have you seen John Carter of Mars? No. Never, ever, ever 
watch John Carr, the 2012 John Carr by Andrew Staten, who had was a Pixar director, I think, based on Edward he, he Edward was. yeah Edward Rice Burroughs film. It's absolutely shockingly bad. The family and I sat in Mallorca. I, I vividly remember on a rainy day in Mallorca, and I honestly thought they were going to kill me by 30 minutes in, and then it was a three and a half hour film. It's just awful. Wow. Okay. Did you not knock it on the head? Well, you know what it's like? You're sort of, I've started, I'm I'm going to grip my teeth and bear it, and it, surely it can't stay this bad, and it just got worse and worse and worse. Terrible. So previous to John Carter, he had directed Finding Nemo and Wally and then Finding Dory. That's And John Carter's the fourth film that he's directed. So he's got some good films in there, just not that one. Finding Dory was disappointing in a way, though, because it was just too, too darn long. But he has written and produced a lot of Pixar films. Yeah, well, his run came to an end and quite hard there, I think. I think he has directed one of the episodes of The Mandalorian or something since. I've, I've seen his name in Star Wars somewhere, but that was an appalling disaster of a film. Yeah, I've never heard anything good about it. No. Right, come on, let's move on. Let's move on. Uh, okay, so I just mentioned a minute ago, I think it's quite good to watch some classic films. I don't know if this is quite in the classic in the same way that, you know, a Casablanca or something maybe, but I'd heard a lot about it. So I made the effort to watch Gosford Park this week which is by Julian Fellows, the same guy who did Downton Abbey and Remains of the Day and others like that. So very much your period drama set in the early sort of 1930s thereabouts. What a great film. What a great cast. Nice little murder mystery. Helen Mirren is in there. Richard E. Grant is in there. Just Clive Owen. All sorts of fantastic stars. Nice script. Very tight. Better than... I'm not a huge fan of the Denton Abbey TV show. It's okay. But this hung together really, really well. Acting. Good music. The period stuff was impeccable. I'd say watch it if you haven't seen it. Yeah, I've, I've seen Gosford Park. I think it's brilliant. It's Julian Fellows writing at his best. The, the ensemble cast is fantastic. So, yeah, no, it's a great film. Something quaintly British, I think, is probably the right way of describing it. So I, I would give it a thumbs up. Yeah, and put together with a largely American filmmaking company. And I quite like the inside meta joke about the American who's always on the phone to Hollywood and it being made by an American you know, sort of cast crew, I should say. So, no, terrific film. Yeah. I had heard somewhere that it, it was meant to, Downton was meant to be sort of a, a sequel to it in some way, shape, manner, or form, which would make sense, sort of set in that world. And you can see that. Same writer. Same writer. And Maggie Smith, of course, is in both as well. Yeah, yeah fair point. So, yeah, Gas, that, I haven't done an awful lot of watching today. This week, I, I've done, I did Gosford Park. I made the effort to do that. And I have been watching on Disney Plus Futurama. They've got all of the Futurama episodes on there going back to whenever. I had forgotten. I hadn't forgotten. I just hadn't appreciated. Certainly for its first six seasons, what a terrific show Futurama is. Oh, yes, it's awesome, isn't it? You and I used to watch it when we were at university, I remember. And you got me into it. Fantastic. It's just such a good, well thought out, quick comedic cartoon in essence really good and stands up and i have heard that it's about to be rebooted again and they're going to start it from not from scratch but they're going to do some new futurama with the original voice cast again so that's great news i hope they can hit the heights and not the slightly lower bit they did when they rebooted it about six years ago i want to say it'll still look great it's a terrific looking show all the way through and disney plus it looks fantastic on there but it just wasn't quite as funny when they sort of tried to move to a more serialized version of it rather than the sort of episodic nothing really really matters way that they had before but uh, yeah exciting fun if you haven't seen futurama i'd say take in the first season it's it's really good no, I'd agree. Thumbs up. I haven't seen it on Disney Plus. So I should tr- maybe try and get it around the children because they, they've gotten to The Simpsons lately, which they would never watch when they were younger. And I wonder whether I could get a bit of Futurama in there. So I will try. 
I think it's worth a go. And then for me, I'm, I've been watching Episodes, which is an annoying TV show because it's called Episodes. And if you search for it, it you, you don't always get what you want. But it's got Matt LeBlanc in it and Stephen Mangan and Tasmin and I can't pronounce her last name, Greg, I think it is. But I love it. And I, I got watching it because I'd been watching a few old Top Gears that had Matt LeBlanc in and he was a presenter on Top Gear. And I just love his sarcastic sort of demeanor and i just think it's very funny it's very adult orientated it's not, not not a family show but i really enjoyed it and i went back and i've just watched the first four seasons of it and i've got the last one lined up to go so i would recommend that yeah i've and seen then, i saw the first two seasons of, of episodes actually and it is a very funny show it is very adult it's definitely not one to watch for the kids in my memory tamsin Greig and stephen mangan are both very watchable there's a channel four show that if you like them acting together called green wing which is a completely off-the-wall sort of hospital screwball thing, which has also got one of the cast who would go on to Friday Night Dinner with Tamsin Greig as well. The name of the actor completely escapes me, but it's also worth a watch. It's a Green Wing. It is very scatterbrained, though, but funny. Yeah, I've not seen Green Wing, but I've heard it's very good. But no, I think episodes just... I just wanted a bit of humour in my life, and I just like Matt LeBlanc's view of the world, and I just find it very funny. And I enjoyed him a lot on Top Gear when he was presenting it because he was just his I don't know just his the way he comes across and some of his humour just struck a chord to me so I've been watching that very very enjoyable and then I did watch most of the episode one of Echo 3 and I can see what you mean it's not what I was expecting at all and I've nearly finished the first episode I thought it was quite good but it was not what I was expecting how how it's started to unfold if that makes sense uh, I'm not raving about it, but equally, it's not the worst thing I've ever seen. So I'm probably in, in, in the middle on it, but I can see why I probably need to watch the second episode to see, actually, is this a TV series that I want to commit to? Okay, I'll, I will go back and finish the first episode. It's absolutely the bottom of my list at the moment, but I'm well done for trying it. Have you continued with Slow Horses as well? Yeah, I have watched the latest episode of Slow Horses. Actually, a friend of mine was texting me, and it... I, I can't remember what I said. I said, hey, what are you up to? And he goes, oh, I'm watching Slow Horses. And I was like, what? Somebody else that's not you or me is watching an Apple TV Plus show. So they're obviously doing something right to permeate into others. But he equally commented on how fantastic it is and the acting, the, the filmography and that. So yeah, Slow Horses, fantastic. And I, yeah, I'm, I'm up to date. I'm kind of waiting for them to release more. Yeah, I think I'm going to wait till they release them all and I'm going to just binge it because I don't really want to wait for it. I kind of just want to watch them one after the other. So that's that's kind of my plan or at least get a few more down there and then just sit in, sink in and enjoy it. Yeah, and we're already on episode four. So if there's only six, it's probably not long to go. Fair enough. Good. Great. Anything else in media? No. Moving on then. Games. Games. My children won't be listening to this, but I did pre-order Lego Star Wars on the, on the PlayStation sale because it was... Which one? Half price. Lego Star Wars Saga, something or other. That, that's not helpful. Skywalker Saga. The Sky, right. Okay. The on Skywalker. the PlayStation 5. But there's so many different variants. You can get the deluxe, the, the non deluxe, the PS4 version. And it's like, oh, it's just too complicated. So I do find that frustrating on the PS5 that every game you go to is like three variants at least that you, you can purchase of it. But anyway, twenty nine ninety nine. I thought that's going to be a cracking game for us to play over Christmas. So but I do miss, you kind of wish they'd give you something to print off so you could give them something i usually end up making something so that at least he's got something to unlock open and then he can go to the playstation see it's been downloaded but that, that was my recent purchase very nice too no i i haven't played the most recent one i i've reached this point with lego games where i've decided they're all the same you, you, if you've played one you kind of feel you play them all but i think that formula is quite good and maybe i need to try one of the more, more modern ones to sort of really appreciate if they have changed it 
I'm in a similar place, so I thought I'd buy the most recent one on the PlayStation 5 so I can go for as modern as humanly possible. Fair enough. Yeah, good. I was thinking about getting it on Steam just so I can play it on my Steam Deck. I think it's going to be perfect for that sort of handheld console thing. Won't look quite as shiny as your presumably 120 hertz and all the rest of it on the PS5, but... Nearly bought it on the Switch. I was like, I'm in an hour in. Do I get it on the Switch or do I get it on the PlayStation? I thought, I'll get it on the PlayStation because it might be quite cool to have two player on the big screen with it and have maximum graphics. Yeah, fair enough. I completely understand. It's, it's a logical choice, whatever you do. So, no, good. Fair enough. For me, I haven't had time to play an awful lot of games. It's been quite busy at work, and that's normally your excuse, not mine, but I'll throw it out there as well. I've been quite busy at work. So, I have been unwinding slightly. The Season 1 of Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2 came out, so... And with that came a map called Shipment. If anyone's a Call of Duty fan, they'll know what Shipment is. It's a ridiculously small map with 12 players where you can always see the other side of the map and it's just chaos. Explosions and flashbangs and machine guns. And you, if, you, if you stay alive longer than 15 seconds, you're doing well. But what it does let you do is rank up all your guns and all that malarkey. So I've been doing a little bit of that and that's been fun because it came with double points as well. At the same time, they also, and I did text you this, allow it to be open to other platforms for, for the long weekend from Friday till today. All the multiplayer was open. You could download it and have a go, obviously to entice you to buy the game. So there were a lot of new players on there as well, which I thoroughly enjoyed slaughtering lots off to upgrade all my guns and my camouflage. So I've got lots of gold guns now. Go on. Yeah, so that's all I've really had a chance to play. I struggled to find this free game though when I go into the PlayStation app on my phone. I was like, well, where is it? I can't, I can't I see it. I think if you downloaded Call of Duty Warzone, you're about to miss it. It's going to end today in about four, five hours. Then you can, it's a. It's one of the things you can choose once you've downloaded Warzone. I will say, we talked before about playing some of the free versions of Call of Duty, Warzone and DMZ mode, DMZ mode, but you need to download that. And then you can, once you've downloaded the sort of initial part of it, you can pick what downloads within that. Yeah, and I think that's where I got confused before when I downloaded it. Okay, I'm yep. probably not going to get to play it tonight. No, but you and I could try and have a game of DMZ over uh, over Christmas if you want. Get our headsets on and get our PlayStations up and see if we can get that working. Yeah, sounds like a good idea. We'll be just as bad at that as we were at the, uh, at the Ghost Recon thing that we failed to play. Oh yeah, I was awful at that. Yeah, that was bad. Anyway, that's what I've been playing. And then my last... I haven't had an awful lot of chance to, to look at this, but I just thought this was intriguing. So... In the same way that I recommended OpenRA a few weeks ago, and you finally had a chance to try now, is I found this thing called Unciv, which is an open source Civilization V, which a developer seems to have written mostly because he wanted to learn the language Kotlin, which is a Google's version of Swift, effectively. It reads very similar to Swift as well. And he's rebuilt Civilization V in Kotlin and made it open source for anyone who wants to. And you can run this on your Mac, you can run it on your Windows box, it comes on the Itch store if people do want to download it and try it, or you can just download the free version from GitHub as well. I just think that's fascinating, somebody to keep that alive. He's not using any of the original assets or anything from from Civ 5, but it plays the same. It's very small, it plays very, very quickly. Once again, I'm just impressed that one developer you know, can take the time to re-engineer something like this and then make it available to the world in this way. This probably takes you back to our link on John Mc mccormack carmack sorry about being running being efficient and you know probably if you had a 10 people it'd have been a lot less efficient if you just had one person blitzing through it it looks quite interesting it's amazing if he's not used any of the original assets and has like reconstructed the game but that is a skill and that's a very good skill to have 
yeah. properly is. Somebody should snap this guy up. If it's a labour of love, I hope somebody's tipping in beer money or something for this, because it's fantastic. And for a lot of people, Civ Five was the definitive Civ, just before it, mo it moved to sort of a more 3D look with lots of animations as it, as it came to with Civ Six, They changed the rules quite significantly with Civ Six, brought in a religion mechanic and all sorts of other things that changed the underlying game in quite a serious way. So I think this is a, it's a clever move, actually, and, and a sensible move to keep something he obviously loves alive. And lots of other people are enjoying it as well. And you can play, there's a Docker version of it. You can stick it on a web server effectively and you can invite your friends to play against you on that. Which, if you've ever tried to play Civ Five mixed between Mac and PC owners, is almost impossible. In fact, I think it is impossible. Why is it impossible? What, because they don't do cross-channel? Because there's differences? They, they don't do cross-platform and the patches are all at different levels. So if you're Mac's patched on the Mac, you can't play the Mac's patched on the PC version. So And then the oh, person, okay. the person on the Mac also needs to be Mac's patched up to that level. So if they didn't buy it on Steam, for example, they may not even be aware that the latest patches are out there. It's a disaster. Yeah, that sounds painful. I think I do own Civ 6 on my Nintendo, actually. Yeah. So I bought it for the iPad. It is available on the iPad, too. It was really expensive for an iPad game. It was like 29 quid or something like that. But I always feel I want to support big AAA titles coming to the iPad because otherwise they'll stop coming to the iPad. And it is quite nice to have XCOM and Civ and Slay the Spire on there. So, you know, I, I kind of want to support that. But And I've played it on flights. is generally the best thing if I've had three or four hours on a plane. And it worked pretty well. Smashes the battery. <laughs> that doesn't surprise me. Yeah. Anyway, Unsev, link in the show notes. Check it out if you've got any interest in a bit of tactical uh, 4X, they call these things these days. These are 4X games where you've got, you know, an evolutionary tree to work through, a technology tree to work through. They've got battle, they've got, you know, diplomacy and all the rest of it. So it's an interesting 4X game. I've never heard that saying before. There you go. You've got to be a gamer like me, man. <laughs> I'm a wannabe gamer, I think. <laughs> yeah, hardcore Call of Duty and nothing else that's bad. But I think that's it for games, unless you've got anything else. Unless you want to talk about Gran Turismo 7, we better move on. We'll talk about Gran Turismo maybe potentially in a minute anyway, so we'll move on. Main show. And this week we thought we'd just give sort of our, our highlights of 2022, really, for some of the things that we, we batter on about week after week. We already did our picks in hardware and software and things like that for what you should be buying your loved ones or friends for Christmas. But we thought this time we'd just talk about some of the things we've particularly enjoyed this year. Do you want to start us off? I can do. I um... I think my honourable mention, as you put it, for TV show is very much down to you because you've got me back into it. So we've gone through and we've looked at TV, film, game, Mac app, and I think the last one was iPad and iOS app. So what we're trying to do here is just come up with what well, an honourable mention and our favourite for the year. So just quite quick. And for me, the TV show that I, I'm going to give an honourable mention to is For All Mankind, season three that was on this year. But I did actually watch one, two and three this year. And it was you that talked me back into it because of how good the story is. And it is fantastic. Whilst I thought the CGI let it down, everything else made up for it. It was fantastic. Such, such a good storyline. Nice how all three seasons interleave together. Just really well thought out. And it's nice to see something that is well thought out and hasn't just forgotten about the, the two seasons that went before it. So that, that was my honourable mention. And then my favourite show, no surprise, would be Slow Horses because I think it is fantastic. I just think the acting in it is great. I love the subject matter that it's the, the rejects as well, the characters. I just think it's really good. Really, really good show. I'm enjoying reading the books. So that is my favourite show of the year. For me, also, my honourable mention is For All Mankind Season 3, and I do mean Season 3. I thoroughly enjoyed the other two seasons we're on, and they're all of a piece, and I'm eagerly looking forward to Season 4. But Season 3, they once again hit it even further out of the park. The acting was great. 
I didn't mind the CGI as much as you, but I can see where you're coming from. But just the story and the fact that it's an original story, it's not relying on any other sort of previous, you know, most things are sort of continuations of something that goes on in the same way that your slow horses is. That This is something new, new IP, and they did a great job with it. And I think For All Mankind Season 3 was terrific. And if you haven't seen For All Mankind, then watch it. And my pick, unsurprisingly, perhaps, isn't Taskmaster for my show of the year. It is Andor on Disney+. Plus. It came out of nowhere. I didn't have massively high expectations for it, even though I do like the Rogue One film an awful lot. But Andor is just terrific acting, terrific script. In in the Star Wars universe, which is somewhere I grew up in, as I think I talked about in the show last year, last week even, not last year, what a revelation Andor was. Couldn't wait for it every week. Blew everything else away as far as I'm concerned. And there was a lot of good television this year. The Boy Season 3 on Amazon Prime this year was fantastic as well. Very different show. But Andor for me, show of the year, and for all mankind, my honourable mention. Yeah, I feel bad I haven't watched all of Andor. I did enjoy it, actually, and I do want to finish it. So that's, oh, that's in the mix somewhere, I reckon. But I think it's a good choice. I think we've been spoiled this year with some really quality TV shows, to be fair. In- interesting, neither of us picked Severance. Yeah, that is interesting, isn't it? And it, I, I think it would have been in my top five for sure. But given the format, we're only doing a, we're, we're doing two choices here, I think. Yeah, but, you know, well done, Apple. You know, Apple have got both of us. So for you, both your shows are Apple TV Plus shows. And for me, it was it was pretty close. And yeah, but Andor just edged out. I think for me, Apple TV Plus and Disney Plus is where I watch most things that I stream with occasional forays into Amazon or Netflix for the ones I pay for and a little bit of iPlayer and BBC. But no, Apple really done a good job, I think, with high-quality TV shows. Yeah, I'd agree. And interestingly, I watched Gosford Park on Disney+. Plus. I didn't go anywhere else for it. It was just there in Disney+, Plus for me. So, yeah, they're doing a good job there. Yep, fair enough. Why don't you start us off with Film of the Year? So, Film of the Year... When I think about it, I've watched lots of films this year, but not many of them were made in 2022, is, I think is the problem. So when I was thinking back to new films that I'd watched, and we have discussed some of them, I think I discussed Emily the Criminal last week, for example, and, and others that have been on. I had to think of the two I actually went to the cinema to see, to make an effort to see. And I do intend to go and see Avatar with the Way of Water, maybe next week, because I enjoyed the first Avatar, and you know I'm quite keen to see what, the, what they'll do with the sequel, and I think he's filmed 3, 4, and 5 while I was at it as well. But for me, my honourable mention is Black Panther 2, Wakanda Forever. I think they did a great job with Chadwick Boseman's legacy and obviously the impact him dying had on all the cast and that sort of strand run right the way through the film was treated very respectfully while still moving on, you know, the Marvel Cinematic Universe as it is and they introduced the second best bad guy, if he's a bad guy, you know, to Marvel since Loki, Tom Hiddleston's Loki back in the day and well done for that. It's, Marvel has fallen down a lot with the bad guys I've put in there but I'm not going to say who it is in case you haven't seen it and it's a spoiler but great cast, come together really well fantastic film the last one didn't win an oscar i feel like this one should for something frankly because it is a terrific piece of, of cinema and then i'm not going to talk about it so much because i'm going to let you talk about it my my film of the year is top gun maverick just because i was so entertained in the cinema with it and i've watched it on streaming i've watched it on apple i've bought it on apple since and it's still a terrific film top gun maverick for me what yeah what a film what a film to go to the cinema for i think top gun maverick to be fair and you and for me, uh, for me, my runner-up is actually Lightyear because I did love it. I remember coming out of the cinema and going, yes, thoroughly enjoyed that. And I did really enjoy it. And I, I like a film where I go with my children. I love watching stuff with my boys. So that's why I picked it. Just a good family film this year. But like you, super struggled to think of anything new. I've watched stuff, not probably not as many films as you, 
but I've watched also a lot of films that didn't come out this year. And I really struggled to chew through my memory of what did I actually sit and watch this year that was released this year. So yeah, like, yeah, definitely up there for me. I, I genuinely enjoyed it. I, it. I don't know, it struck a chord with me. I think just because I was there with my kids enjoying it. And then my top pick was the same as you, Top Gun Maverick. Even though I didn't go with my mates to see it, with my children to see it, I did go with a friend. I thought it was just so well done. And I remember sitting in my chair and I felt like I was in a plane, like, you know, one of those rides at a theme park, you know, 3D cinema. And I wasn't in a 3D cinema. I just thought it was fantastic. Genuinely enjoyed it and thought they had the right level of nostalgia and bringing it, you know, making it a modern film, filmed, what, 30 odd years later. So genuinely, no, I really enjoyed it. They were two fantastic films. I hope that we get some more films next year because it, is, it does feel still super light in the film space. Yeah, well, we've got Oppenheimer upcoming, haven't we? And we've got Avatar, which I already talked about. So hopefully within one of those two, we'll have uh, something we can watch. But yeah, it's nice that we both agree on a choice for once. Top Gun Maverick is an easy one for us both to pick. Uh, yeah, that's true. We are agreed. I can't even remember what Avatar 1 was like, so I might have to go and rewatch that. It's on Disney+. Plus. Oh, is it? Fantastic. Yep. yep. Moving on, what's your game of the year? Or your honourable mention, if you have one. So I've played so few games this year, I think. So I haven't really got an honourable mention. I mean, I could mention like F1 22. I've played that a little bit. I've played a bit of FIFA 23 with my son. I've played a few bits on the Nintendo. But really, the only game I want to talk about is Grand Turismo 7 because I love it. And it's kept me playing it. And I was thinking about, and I mentioned the mechanic or the daily marathon they do and you get a prize for doing it. That sticky mechanic has made me play it, even if it's just for half an hour, to get the mileage in the 26 miles that you need to to win the award that makes me go back and pick an event to do and then when they've got the monthly updates where you get new cars occasionally new tracks it's just kept the whole game fresh for me and that there's something else to go and do or something i haven't tried and i'm enjoying doing it with, with my nine-year-old son and we we talk about what we've both gone and bought or done so for me i'm going to go grand Turismo 7 i think it's fantastic it was a lot of money when i bought it but i've definitely had value out of it if it makes you happy it can't be that bad as Cheryl Crow said yeah fair enough yeah I've deleted it off my PlayStation and but it's interesting that mechanic of you sort of grinding the track to get you know whatever it is the little bonus for the year 26 miles is very similar to Call of Duty's horse armor for your golden gun or whatever you know it's whatever that sticky thing is that works for you that scratches you that, that itch in your brain it's obviously working for you with Gran Turismo so well done Sony Polyphony Digital they've, they've got that sorted out haven't they it's quite a skill to come up with that mechanic I think of making it sticky enough to come back and so it makes me come back and i'll sit down and go i don't want to do that race i'll go and try a mission or try and get a license or whatever it may be so i think it's a skill they've done the mechanic and it's worked really well on me i've just get me to play little and often rather than sitting down for hours at a time which doesn't really suit my lifestyle so no, i'm enjoying it and it's still as fresh now as it was six months ago Fair enough. For me, I have got an honourable mention. It's Marvel's Midnight Suns. I have thoroughly enjoyed what I have played of it. I'm quite enjoying the story. The combat is, I think the word is crunchy. You know, I said before when it came out that the mix of the deck builder like Slay the Spire and XCOM with, with Marvel stuff that I quite like anyway is sort of a perfect crux for me. It's quite difficult, i got to say. You know, the, the difficulty level ramps up really, really quickly. So it does take a lot of thought of the way that you're going to play it. But it's working well for me. I'm really glad I've got it. It also was quite a lot of money. I think it was $39.99 on Steam, which is quite a lot for a Steam game. But I have thoroughly enjoyed it. It sounds good. I, yeah, I haven't really used Steam. I've not played Marvel's <coughs> Midnight Suns either, so I probably have got much, much to say about it. Sorry. No. So, and the last one, which I'm entreating you to come and join me on a raid, is Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2. It's my game of the year. I've played it 
far, far more than I should have. I should have opened the Steam device here so I could tell you how many hours I'd sunk into Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2, but I'm not sure it's something I really want to brag about. Like I say, I think I've got nine gold guns now, so... <laughs> I think that's probably something to be embarrassed about more than anything else, but yeah, it works for me. I don't think it's the pinnacle of first-person shooters, but it's got enough going on and it sort of, that scratches my particular itch there as well. And there is a deeper free game under, lying there underneath it all too, so good job Infinity Ward, you've kept us going for another year and we'll see how well that keeps going. I've still got to finish Vanguard off. I remember I bought that when it was on sale. I like the solo campaigns, I don't know why, they, they, they kind of work for me. I'm not surprised you've picked Call of Duty Modern Warfare. I should have possibly given an honourable mention, just in hindsight, to Platoon 3. My children have been really enjoying it. They love the mechanic of paint. It's fantastic for them, and it's very Nintendo. So that, in hindsight, should have been my honourable mention. Fair enough. Good stuff. Moving on, I think this will be almost entirely me in this next category, and it's Mac App of the Year. I don't think Chris has one, but we'll, I'll check in in a minute. <coughs> yeah, I don't use my Mac, so I am Mac App free. I'm sorry, to, and I am sorry to say it because I used to love my Mac. I used it a lot, but now I've largely iPad only. My Mac just sits in the corner. But what I am going to do over Christmas, I think, is open up to the children, as I, as we spoke previously on the podcast. So I'm, I'm going to be interested to see their feedback. Fair enough. You should put OpenRA on there for them. Maybe you can you can call that your Mac app of the year next year. I don't know. Yeah, potentially. So mine won't be surprised to anyone. My honourable mention is Obsidian. I was a bit unsure about Obsidian when we started talking about our note-taking apps, which is one of the first things we did on this podcast, actually. I now use it quite intensively. All the show notes for this podcast go into Obsidian first. As I'm using NetNewsWire or I'm using Safari or I'm using whatever or whatever device I'm on, be it a Mac, be it an iPad, be it my phone, if there's an interesting link comes along, I have a, an action that just automatically inserts the text, the URL, and the, and the name of the article into an Obsidian note for me, and I use that. I use it to manage my servers. It's just a really great app. It's becoming stickier and stickier for me all the time. It's almost becoming my default note-taking app over Apple Notes, which I'm a big fan of Apple Notes. The syncing of them works really well. So yeah, well done, Obsidian. That My only slight reservation with it is it does tie you even further into the Apple ecosystem unless you're going to pay for their syncing thing because it syncs with iCloud and only iCloud. You can't put its data store on your own device somewhere or like a Dropbox link somewhere. It's got to be iCloud or it's got to be you pay for the Obsidian thing, which isn't bad. The developers need to make a, make a buck or two. I don't really blame them for that, but I'd rather my note-taking was, was plain text somewhere I can see it where I can get it. I used to be a big fan of a couple of the more open-source note-taking apps outliners effectively as much as anything else and those notes were always saved as markdown documents somewhere which you can get in and you can do that with obsidian too but i just wish the syncing service was a little bit so that's why it doesn't become my app of the year my app of the year which i have talked about the last few podcasts is raycast it has now entirely replaced alfred on my device i was forced to use an older mac for a couple of hours today and it had alfred on it and i felt like it was missing my left arm slightly have become so used to Raycast. The critical thing, it's good at finding things. The clipboard syncing works really well. The snippets of text works really well. It's the plugins. It's the fact you can have a meme generator built into it and generate a meme for something funny in about three seconds. The GIF lookups are in there. Integration with one password is in there. Integration with Pocket and other stores like that is in there. It's just a really well done app, which has surprised me. Came out of nowhere for me this year. I know people have been talking about it for years before that. The fact that it's free and it's got all this functionality is just amazing to me. So Raycast is my app of the year. Interesting. I'm not surprised because you talked very fondly of it before. And I think when you've got an app like that and it's really in your workflow, you end up using it without really noticing that it's there. And I guess today you're going back and using a Mac that didn't have it. Just emphasize even more how much you rely upon it. So I'm not surprised. And I'm, 
I'm a little sad I haven't got anything to talk about on the Mac, if I'm honest. It's, that's the end of an era, Chris. You should have one thing. You know, you should fire up your Mac. You should at least say Xcode or something that you've used this year. I've barely used that. I've barely done anything on it this year. I just haven't had the time or the inclination, I think, to sit there and and do anything with it. So, yeah, maybe my kids will get me back into it, like I say, as they open it up and set them up with profiles on it and start getting them using it. Yep, give it a go. So, this can be all your section, really. iPad and iOS app of the year. Yeah, so I struggled on this one a little bit, and I was just trying to think, well, what have I used that's different? Because I use the Office apps all day, every day for work, and they're very solid. The Microsoft suite from Office, Teams is a bit iffy, but has got much better in towards the end of the year with some more recent updates they've done. Word, PowerPoint, Excel, they're my, my staple getting stuff done on my iPad. But I, I didn't really want to in, choose them. So what I have gone for, actually, is NetNewsWire is my runner-up, because that has weaned me off Twitter massively. And it's just so simple. I've just got a bunch of sites in there, not even that many sites. And it just alerts me when there's a new article on there, which is great. So that, that's helped, helped me wean myself off Twitter. Done. I think it's really good. And it was a free app. And I've pointed it at Feedly, which is also free. So that, that solved a big problem for me. And then I was thinking, well, what have I done this year where I've done some something a bit different on the iPad? And actually, I thought the Affinity apps really did this one for me in that the affinity apps when i start using with version one and it's photo and designer i believe it's called and they're the apps where i've gone and made the graphics for this podcast i've edited some photos i've made some other logos for things at work they're just fantastic apps and they were super cheap for what you got and they've just re-released well they've just released newer versions version two including like a desktop editing you know page layout app which i haven't used but it's a great update they cost about 10 pounds each if you buy them independently or you can buy like a 90 pound license which means you can use it on any platform which wouldn't make sense for me because i'd only use it on my ipad but i just think they're really good apps and really show what you can do on your ipad the quality of photo editing vector graphics desktop publishing now and so i think that's the ones i'm going to go for and I, like i said i use them to make the graphics for the artwork for this and loads of other bits to do with the website and various pieces so affinity for me for productivity and i think they're priced very competitively Interesting. I mean, NetNewsWire is a great app. I'd, I'd endorse that. I've used it for years, so I can't put it into my app of the year this year. And the Affinity apps, I use Publisher and the other one, the name of which escapes me at the moment. What's the other one? Photos. Photos. Designer. For work. We de design our academic posters in it because we got fed up with the limitations of PowerPoint and dragging things around. So I actually bought six copies of it for my analysts and myself, and we use it fairly intensively for designing our posters. If you're trying to do A0 posters in a particular orientation, make sure all your tables work. It's terrific. And if you want to import from a an other PDF, it does an amazing job of recycling the artwork and things and stuff you can edit. So I've been really impressed with Affinity on the Mac. I can only presume that it's as good as that on on the iPad. I might find it a little limiting. I think I you know you can use a keyboard and a mouse obviously with an iPad these days, but I, I kind of want my big screen when I'm working on some of these large sort of designs for for print jobs. So yeah, it, it's a good app. It's it, it really sticks it to the Photoshop apps suite of apps, I would say, in terms of what it's able to do, particularly publisher and things like that. So, yeah, I'm very impressed with it too. One com one minor complaint is on the iPad, it doesn't really do multitasking. So it just launches, you can have it as a size on, on your external display. For whatever reason, you know, you can't scale it to fill the screen and resize it, which is a bit of a shame when I've got a 27-inch screen and I'm editing a photo and it's taking up, I don't know, 60% of the screen real estate. That's my one complaint, but I think the app is fantastic. I think they priced it really well. And I haven't tried the second variants yet, but I'm planning to have a go over Christmas. Do some, I want to do a bit of playing with some photos I've done. Fair enough. 
For me, I've got two. I've got my honorable mention, which is WireGuard, which is a VPN protocol. I have a, a Docker server. I've got a few Docker servers down in the basement. I, I've enabled a thing on that, and now all my devices, I can fire up a QR code connecting to it, and that's my VPN back to the house sorted for any of my devices, be it my Mac or my iPad or my phone. I managed to configure it while I was sitting in a conference in Italy because the Teleport app, which I was using to connect to my Ubiquiti networking equipment, was rubbish and not kept up to date enough. Very impressed with it. Very simple to install on the iPad. Does exactly what I want, which is scan this QR code you want to put it in, configures your VPN tunnel, bang, and you're off to the races, and it just integrates seamlessly with the operating system. So very impressed with WireGuard, a free piece of software. And then my second one, because I re remembered I was playing it so much in the early part of the year, and we've still got an outstanding piece of work to do where we're going to try and meet up and play it on our iPads together, and that's Apex, Le Apex Legends Mobile, which they did a terrific job bringing it to the iPad. It's very feature complete to what you get on the various PC or PlayStation implementations of it. As long as you've got a controller, it's a great game. Very impressed. Give it a go. That's all I got. That's it. Do you that's not it. think Apex Legends should have come under game? Yeah, but I don't use my iPad for productivity particularly. Only, only, only a push. So for me, it's a consumption device. Although you know, playing a, a reasonably high end game on there isn't bad going, is it? You know. No, no, that's true. I just just ribbing you a little bit, I guess, because it sounded very much like a game, and I guess we could have split it out. But it is an app, so it's an app on on your iPad. It'll be interesting if we do get alternative stores to tie it back in. Whether you know we have a game store in the future and an app store, and we pick some off the app store, maybe some off a game store. So it'd be interesting to see how how that all plays out. I struggle to think of a second app, to be honest. That I'd, I'd used that intensively on the iPad. Obsidian, maybe I could have got, but given a mention there as well. Photos? No. Barely launch it. Music? No, nope, never play your music on my iPad. That's what my phone's for, or I've got my new Sonos speakers <laughs> because now my HomePods won't work anymore, and that's what they're getting used for. Fair enough, fair enough. Okay. That was good. That was quite interesting, actually, to see what we've picked. Whilst we've converged on a couple of bits, we're actually very different. We are. And I think if we keep this going into a second year, what we need to do is be a bit more sort of conscientious about how we collect apps of the week and, you know, things that we've tried and all the rest over over the course of the year. So can we be a little more together when it comes to the end of the year, see what we've actually done and learned? Are you suggesting we fell into making a podcast and here we are 48 weeks later and we hadn't really thought it out. But you're right, we should maybe have a table or something of stuff we've done throughout the year and gather the data. So actually when you come to the end of the year, it's like, ah, I know what I've done. Well, I think this year has been a, we should probably do a retrospective at the 52 weeks mark rather than right now. But, you know, I think it's, it's to what, coming towards New Year, it makes you a bit reflective. I, I, I think a little, we, we, we didn't fall into this, but it's been an experiment, so, you know, to a greater or lesser degree. But if we go to a second year, it's not an experiment. It's something we're continuing to do. We should be a bit more rigorous about it, maybe. Yeah, enter into it with a bit more consciousness, maybe, of, of what we're doing and maybe structure. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good idea. Because then you've got history as well. You can go back and, what did you do in 2022? Oh, that's what we recommended then. So you, you're going to have to keep those kind of lists, aren't you? Yeah, it's a good point. It's a good point. Fair enough. Good show, Chris. That was good, mate. Yeah, it's very good. And next time we'll be post-Christmas, I guess, when we catch up. We will. We'll, we'll try and think of something interesting to do for New Year, or stories of the year or something like that. <laughs> something just to see us out, because I hope there'll be no tech news or social network might not have gone bang by then. Who knows? We shall see. Maybe we'll have some gaming stuff to report back on as well. Yeah, that's true. Hopefully we may even do a two-player, hey? You never know. But a time over Christmas might be it, yeah. Yeah, we may have some time off, depending if the family allows us, hey? 
Cool. So if you want to get in touch with us, you can still get in touch with us at wakefromsleep at protonmail.com. We're still at WFS underscore podcast on Twitter, but I suspect not for very much longer. I'm at G5Maniac at mastodon.scot if anybody wants to drop me a line directly. And you said you'd started a Mastodon account, Chris. What's that? I did. And why do you have to ask me that right now? Because I knew I wasn't going to know. I'm on mastodon.social and my username is at underscore cjp at mastodon.social there we go you can hit chris up there or me on mastodon.scot it all works as one though don't worry about it talk to you next week chris perfect cheers right have a good christmas